Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. That button there. Hello, everyone. <laughs> it's always it's always this show. It's always this show, Tim Harvey, where I hit the button and nothing happens. So <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, just got to be difficult. I guess. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the H2O Podcast. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Harvey. And, uh, Tim, I got a question for you. Are you a god? <laughs> See, there's no good way to answer that question. All right. Uh, okay, so uh, we have uh, seen Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, for those of you who are paying attention, I have posted over on the .com my review. And so we're going to be talking about it tonight. What we're going to do, we're going to divide this up into two halves. So the first half hour-ish, we're going to talk general uh, reactions and responses and thoughts. And, and then after, we'll take a break at the half hour mark. And then after that, we will get into spoiler territory. So we're going we're gonna to hold off on the spoiler discussion until after the break. So that'll give you a chance, if you have not seen it yet... You can dump out at that point, and you know where to come back in after you've seen it, and we'll discuss spoilers from there. So if that's if that's acceptable to everybody, that's what we'll do. So uh, if you are new to the channel, we do welcome you and invite you to subscribe and have your notifications on. Find us on all the social media. The email address, if you want to send us feedback for this show, h2o at sci-fi for me.com. All right, all the busy business is out of the way. Let's talk Ghostbusters. <laughs> I have seen it twice now. Mm -hmm. I have thoughts. Um, I when when I wrote my review, the, the I led with I am fifty one and fourteen all at the same time because this uh, well before before i get into that part let me let me lay a couple of ground rules we're not going to discuss the 2016 reboot at all because it has absolutely nothing to do with this movie well um i'm going to mention it a bit for a reason but you're right it has nothing to do with this okay now i do have i do have a thought <coughs> but it's not it's not one of those that where it's got to have any any substantial amount of time here because reactions and and emotions being what they are uh anybody who anybody who has ill will toward that film uh is generally going to be kind of over the top in the hyperbole and and i haven't seen it so that's the other part of it is i haven't seen that one so well and and i i've seen it and I don't think it deserves quite the hate that it, it gets. Um, but yeah, it also it also does something that. So one of the reasons I actually quite enjoyed this film is that it didn't do something. It didn't try to be Ghostbusters, the original movie, right? And I think and, I think Jason Reitman had even talked about that in the in some interviews. The fact that we needed to have a different approach 
while at the same time honoring and respecting right. what had come before. So I think, and that, I think you know. what what we run into with both the second film and the and the 2016 reboot is trying to capture the first movie. Yeah, and however, you know, whether you liked or disliked this the Ghostbusters two or the reboot, both of them tried to recreate something and one of it did it with the original cast and one of it did it with a new cast of characters who were essentially based on the models of the original cast right and but both of those films i think really proved and what one of the reasons i really quite enjoyed this film is for not doing it is that the original film really was a product of a place and a time and a moment, this cast, this script, this audience, this, this viewership right. at that time. And there are movies that are like that. And quite frankly, one of the biggest problems we have with this whole, you know, let's make a sequel or a reboot or all these different things that, that of course is, is all the rage right now. And sometimes it works. The not, Halloween sequels, not Candy very Man. often though. It well, no, but the thing, is, the interesting thing is, is that for some of these series that they're getting these new reboots, it's the ones that have been burned to the ground. Yeah, and the earth has been salted, <laughs> and there's they built another town over it, and that town burned to the ground, and then the earth has been salted, and and it's it happens in horror a lot, right? Um, and, and horror is a great example and Ghostbusters has horror elements, obviously, but in large part, it is a comedy series, but in horror, you end up with this thing that happens where you have an iconic movie that, that changes the genre and everyone's super excited about it, whether it's right. Halloween or Hellraiser or, uh, Friday the, the 13th the or Nightmare on Elm Street um, you know, American Werewolf in London, right? These these iconic movies, right? And then the sequels come out, and it's a it's diminishing returns every time a new sequel comes out until finally the series has been so just wildly off track. And I think Hellraiser is probably one of the greatest examples of this. You had one really amazing, um, just bonkers weird movie that everyone was just like wow and a sequel that was kind of like okay and then <laughs> a million sequels and in fact at the end the studio was churning out cash grab sequels just to hold on to the rights because they had you know they were hoping that they could finally make that thing well, then, that's like that's like Constantine Film doing the Fantastic Four movies all the time is because they have to keep making them in order to right. be able to keep making them. But the problem is, and I think that that what we have luckily seen mm. with films like the new Halloween trilogy and and the Candyman uh, film is that if you wreck something enough, someone will come <laughs> along and go. Okay. 
Yeah. What if we did this? And so everyone sits there and goes, we have nothing left to lose. <laughs> well, I think the other part of that, too, is if you look at something like uh, like Ghostbusters, you mentioned you mentioned the comedic elements of it. Um, I I have to wonder sometimes if people have misunderstood Ghostbusters because I don't I don't particularly see it as primarily a comedy so much as it is this this mishmash of various different genres because um, you know it's it's you know like you like you said with you know this combination of talent th- this cast these writers this story and that that kind of thing it's very similar to what Paul Rudd was talking about uh, there was a video that Rotten Tomatoes did with uh, with the interviews of the press junket, and Paul Rudd said the same thing. It's, you know, you've got this particular cast. It's lightning in a bottle. And, yeah, there are a bunch of comedians, and there's that comedic element, but there's also the horror side of it. There's the supernatural side of it. There's some tension. There's some drama. And I think... Based on now, th- based on critiques and comments and complaints that I've heard about 2016, and uh, to some extent Ghostbusters 2, they tried to do too much of a comedy and missed the rest of the mix. And uh, Ghostbusters uh, 2 might have also kind of, well, we can't do the same kind of story, we have to tell a different kind of story. And well, but the thing is, that's what that made the first one work. In both of in both cases, Ghostbusters two and 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 the reboot, you end up with films. I think that try too much to be, even if the story details are different, yeah. they're trying too much to be the first film. And so, so here's where filmmakers uh, uh, have a problem with beloved franchises. <laughs> Pick your beloved franchise. Does it have spaceships? Maybe. Does it have horror? Maybe. Does it have comedy? Whatever it is. The your beloved franchise, people fell in love with these things for a reason. So the instinct is to give them more of the same. Yeah. And the problem with giving them more of the same is that eventually more of the same becomes the same. And that can be a problem. It can be it, it, if you can make it work then great but it it becomes it can become hard for some stories to do that and then if you try and give them something new well new, it's not the same is, yeah new is different and why aren't you doing it the way we've always done it so it's a catch 22 but i mean and and you know sometimes you can make it work and sometimes you can't and sometimes you can find the sweet spot that does a little bit of both but it's a challenge and it's a challenge with storytelling in general and we've talked about this before too well, I think the uh, I think when you when you when you look at the history of the third Ghostbusters movie, the fact that it's been one of those things that has been kicked around and and uh-huh. noodled on for decades now. I mean, literally, it's been 30, 30 some odd years. And, you know, it's been 37 years since the first one. And the second one came out in 89, I think. Was it, were there five years between the two? Something. So, so something like that. And, and after that, 
nothing. I mean, we, we'd hear rumblings every now and again, and Dan Aykroyd had this idea, and yeah, they want to do it, and all of that, and Bill Murray was being a schlub and holding out and not wanting to do it and all that. And, you know, falling outs and all various different things that went on. And then, of course, Harold Ramis died in 2014, and that was it. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not going to get another Ghostbusters movie. Right. And when we hear about this one, by surprise, I mean, they'd been working on it. And, oh, hey, by the way, we're doing a Ghostbusters movie. And everybody went, excuse me, what? <laughs> You know, because we didn't really know about it until we got that first little teaser. Right. And you you go in and the camera pushes in and it's the old Ecto-1 and you're hearing Elmer Bernstein's music and you're like, hang on, wait a minute, what is this? And you hear Jason Reitman's doing it. And suddenly, suddenly the, that, that, that little, that little Spark of hope. Don't give me hope. Don't give me hope. Don't. Well, and that's don't. the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, you because you and I have talked about how when, when we got the Force Awakens trailer and how much it just like, yeah, hits you. And if you were young enough to watch it in the theater, the Star Wars in the theater the very first time, Ghostbusters, for good and for ill, has that kind of connection to the audience, and so there's this this fear it's just pure fear of seeing um this this thing that you really care about just not work yeah and i i think i think it's an apt comparison between between ghostbusters afterlife and the force awakens because afterlife gets something right that the force awakens did not get right in hindsight. The The further away you get from The Force Awakens and the more objective you're able to be and, and the less we have to worry about maintaining our access to Disney and saying the right things so they don't get mad at us, you know, the, the, real, the real opinions start to bubble out. And a lot of people felt that Force Awakens was pretty much just a pastiche of the very first original Star Wars films, like you're talking about, you know, wanting to make the other Ghostbusters movie the same as the first one. And there was a concern that Ghostbusters Afterlife was going to screw up by the numbers here. And Reitman, he's very deft and clever in just what he pulls forward from the 1984 movie and what he puts in that's brand new to give us a mix of nostalgia. I mean, it's marinated in nostalgia. Oh, sure. But the Easter eggs and the callbacks and all of that are fairly organic to the story, at least up through the first couple of thirds of the film. The last third of the film, it's it's all... We've all we've danced this dance before. We're going to do it again, and and it's. Well, I, but it's I, satisfying, though. It's not I just think, feeling like, oh, we've done this before. I've seen this before. Why are we going here again? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that I think that's one of the things that in in the reviews that I've read, a lot of the ones that are more critical. Um. I think we run into something that 
you're never going to make everyone happy. Yeah. And that's that's something, folks, I think that that we need to remind ourselves when we watch or read or listen to the content that we watch or read or listen to <laughs> is not everything is going to hit you the way that you want it to or that the creators want it to. And and that's okay. And I know it's hard sometimes with the things that we really love. You know, when we get our new Star Wars movie or new Star Trek movie or new uh, Doctor Who or, or you know, the new film in the late in the franchise that we grew up with we and this is perfectly human i mean don't don't feel bad that you do it because we all do is we judge this stuff based on how it makes us feel and how we remember how it made us feel and that's just perfectly normal behavior yeah the 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 hard part can be to separate yourself from the and you you and i maybe have have some some better skill at this because we do a lot of analysis and review of things and there's a there's that necessary distance that you don't always get to pull off but we try at least <laughs> and i think I, and, I, and i think that most most professional critics do the same yeah. but at the same time they're just people too so some of these things you get the feeling that it's like you know it's too nostalgic for the original well what else were you going to get or it's it's not it you know it 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 doesn't feel enough like the original. It's like okay, mm-hmm. well, we've tried that. We had two movies where two different you know the original cast and a brand new cast tried to do that, and along comes a director who goes, <clears throat> you know that didn't work, right? <laughs> and I well, and I'm not willing to try it again because I've watched I've watched those two movies. Yeah. And I, they, they didn't do what we wanted them to do. Well, I think when you stop and consider, too, that Jason Reitman was there as a kid when that first movie was being made, and he's got a perspective that nobody else has, both as a, as a fan, as a filmmaker, as somebody who was a kid when this thing came out. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know I was 14, uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm not sure Reitman's, I think a little bit younger than we are, but he's got such a unique perspective. And I saw the, the original guys, uh, were on, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon. They were talking about coming back to this thing. And Bill Murray said, uh, you know, Jason came up with a script and he got it. And it was one of those things where I I would imagine he's probably one of the only people who would understand it enough and get it enough that he could put this kind of story together. But if you look at it as if it was the third movie in a trilogy, it works because you now have the bookends of what happened in the first movie and what happens now in this third movie? Now, granted, there's 30 years between episode two and episode three, for for lack of a better way to describe it. Uh, but you do have a sense of balance, I guess, because the second movie, 
look at the look at the Indiana Jones films. You look at the first three, okay? And I've seen analysis of somebody, and I can't remember who it was, made a very good point. The the two Indiana Jones movies that really work are are faith oriented. Now you have the Ark of the Covenant in the first one, mm-hmm. and Indiana Jones has to has to confront and eventually come to this point where he's got to believe in the power of the Ark. You know, his Catholic upbringing or whatever, all of that co- comes into play here. And then in The Last Crusade with the, the cup of Christ, and, and again, you're dealing with matters of faith, whereas with the Temple of Doom, you're not dealing with Christian art artifacts, Christian art, archetypes, and so it doesn't play quite as well because people don't identify with that in general, just, you know, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush. But you have the first, the first Ghostbusters and the third Ghostbusters. They, they stay in the same playground. And number two is kind of the Temple of Doom with the, with the ooze under the, under the, under the city. Maybe. I, I think that, that there's something to that. Although I think one of the other problems, and, and I actually have a lot of fondness for Temple of Doom. Well, and, um, I, and that's not to say it's a bad movie, but it doesn't. But, but it's it also, but it's also an exaggeration. Well, I mean, there's there, okay. So there's also a couple of different things when you come into the storytelling here. Is that for American audiences, it's much easier to understand whether you believe in it or not. Right. The the basic outlines of, of you know the outline of the Ark of the Covenant. Probably, if you went to Sunday school, or or you know, if you have had, had any kind of upbringing in that, you know, so a lot of these things are are things that the, that the audience is going to be familiar with once you go across and, and dealing with another faith system. And it's not the worst uh, 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 display of that particular faith system, but it's also a lot of exaggerations and cliches. And it's, it's the exotic East. Yes. Like and, and so, I mean, there's, there's some stuff in there that's like, you look at it and go, <laughs> but I think it, I think it's what's fascinating about about coming in the way that that Reitman does here is that he, the emotional connection that he's got with growing up with this with this being part of his development of part of his childhood means that for him and he's talked about this there's a per, there's a, a, a per, very personal aspect to this that like you said other directors are just not going to have yeah and consequently i don't think that even even if he had set out to do i'm going to remake from the ground up exactly the same movie as ghostbusters the first ghostbusters Mm -hmm. even if he set out to do that it wouldn't have felt like it because there's an um, there's too much there's too much about family in this movie that feels like i'm talking about the people and the place and the time that he experienced yeah 
and and there's some, and there's some very there's some very um stock family relationships yeah. to some degree there's and 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 that's not and and while that's like you said in your review um you know the mom although i had no problem with her performance and and i thought she was funny sometimes um she's she's well, doesn't I, have they don't it, give her a lot to do right there's nothing wrong with her performance but the character is rather one-dimensional right and, they just don't they just they don't give her a lot she doesn't have an arc Not well really. and i think that well the important the interesting thing is is that this is a film where the adults aren't that important to a there's degree. something there's something about and and uh, there's a lot here that actually works for me in a nostalgia sense that I was a little surprised about. There's very much a feel for me of an 80s coming of age movie, which mm-hmm. is interesting because, of course, we've got a Ghostbusters which is an 80s comedy. Yeah. And where the, so there was a thing, cast your mind back to the 1980s <laughs> and young, and films about young people. The adults were often on the periphery. Right. Unless they were an obstacle. Well, and you think of movies like The Goonies. Um, Stand by Me, which is not a comedy, but you've got you have the kids. What was that other one? Um, there were there were there were go they were ghost hunter kids. What was that film? Um, Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. You had Explorers. You mm-hmm. had. Um, Oh, what was the other one? Uh, Flight of the Navigator. All, all, all of these different ones. Uh, uh, Adventures of Babysitting. Oh yeah, yeah. But the, the 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 adults matter to the story in that oftentimes they put the children in the situation. Mom needs to move back home because we, you know, we've lost the apartment and we got to move here, and right. you know, so that they instigate things. Or hey, look, um, if what's what an amazing replica of the thing you have there. I mean, these they drive, they 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 influence the story. They push things forward, but it's about the children. And even when we get to the end of the film, and we have a lot more adult presence, mm-hmm. um, it's still about the kids. Yeah, and, to a certain extent. And it's- I think that, that that actually ends up making it work, I think, really well for an, a new audience if you take your kids to see ghostbusters mm-hmm. afterlife they're not going to look at you and go why <laughs> why right. why am i here right <laughs> uh just uh, let me address here in the chat robert talking about his his experience uh seeing the the phantom menace the first star, uh, star wars episode one first movie i saw all the way through in a theater it says, when I watched Phantom, I thought how old I was compared to the first one and how I didn't think I would ever enjoy a movie again as much as I enjoyed Star Wars. So, And, and it, is, it is one of those experiences, you know, that's one of the things that we talked about. You have to see Ghostbusters Afterlife on the screen. You have to, you have to see it, big. So. You should see it in the theater. And your, to your point about the kids, I think it's one of those things where We've got a confluence of a couple of different things. We have our memories as teenagers 
seeing the first Ghostbusters movie, we have a whole generation now that's familiar with Ghostbusters because of Stranger Things mm-hmm. and that crowd because Stranger Things is the kids mm-hmm. and it's very much in the in the way of the 80s type of style oh, yeah. and tone. And it's designed so to be that. that. I mean, it's, it's... Yeah, and, and with Finn Wolfhard being in there, you know, you're pulling in all of your Stranger Things uh, fans and it's that, it's, it's those elements... Plus, it's we we reach back in our nostalgia in order to reach forward to the next generation and hand off the baton. So this is this is accomplishing a couple of different things. It's taking all of the original audience and saying the franchise is in good hands. Now we're going to hand it off to this cast who can go forward with it and we'll keep telling these this kind of story that you remember from the 80s we're going to keep doing it and well, but even if there isn't another film oh you know even there if, will be even if well okay i i know how <laughs> i know how economics works but even if there wasn't one yeah even if this was it it becomes a capstone it does to to what we've seen before and even if you Say you wanted to discount the second film. There are people who do, who who prefer to prefer to believe that there was never a sequel to Ghostbusters. <laughs> There's you know it's, fans it's have that for as, a lot of different things. Yeah, but it's not as bad a sequel as Highlander Two was. Okay, I mean see, it wasn't on the list of sequels <laughs> that are not as bad as Highlander Two. It's a long list, uh, but it's a still. long list. Quite frankly, I mean, for all for all the fact that I did have, I did find plenty of flaws in in the 2016 Ghostbusters. I'm a huge Highlander fan, and I'll watch the the reboot Ghostbusters films several more times before I sit down and watch <laughs> Highlander two again, Renegade cut or not. Yeah, um, because it's you know that that's that's an example of how to completely destroy a series. Yeah. It um, is. And but I think that I think that what what ends up happening with a movie like this, is, I mean, it, it's you're never critics don't matter in this movie for this movie. Agreed. I, I, I completely, I, you know, hey, we do it. Other people do. If the critics who love it, the critics who don't, the critics who think it's OK, everybody in the middle Folks, this is a movie that it's going to be you watching this film and making a decision for yourself. Read the critics if you want, but this is one of those movies where for a lot of the audience, mm-hmm. it's going to be really personal. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's that's a risk. <laughs> Fair warning. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and we can talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, setting up for a new series of these films. We're going to get into spoilers. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're diving into spoiler territory. You have been warned. We'll be right back after this. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Hi everyone, Jason Hunt here. I'm the editor at Sci-Fi For Me, inviting you to join me for real talk about the issues of the day, plus in-depth conversations with creators and experts in and around the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genres. 
We're live from the bunker Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Delivering the multiverse since 2009. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. Back on the H2O podcast. Now we're going to talk spoilers. Spoilers. I can't for... believe Finn Wolfhard died so that. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> well, it, let, let's. Do you want to work our way from the back? From, from, work our way backwards because there's, there's an end scene because we talk about, you know, even if there's never going to be another one. Right. Um, the end. And it's funny because the the two times we're sitting in the theater, I knew there was going to be a mid credit scene. So I'm kind of going, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Right. And some people listened and they stayed and they, they watched. And of course, you know, we're in the habit now because of, of the Marvel films that you, right. you, you wait until the very end. And as it turns out, there's a payoff for that. And uh, we saw it last night again with Mindy's mother and we're sitting there and we're watching it and, and there's people that are starting to get up. It's like, it's not over. It's not over. And the people sitting next to us stayed throughout the entire thing. They listened to us. And I turned over and over to look at them and I said, now, when you start talking about the scene that nobody else saw, they're going to think you're crazy, but you saw it and they didn't get to see it. You know something they don't know. Because you have this scene at the end with Janine and uh, Winston, with Ernie Hudson's character. And it sets up the next one rather handily. If there is a next one, and yes, like I, like I said, I mean, the odds of there not being a next one are pretty slim. Yeah. But I also think that <clears throat> it does a good job of and the story continues. Yeah. Yeah, I and can I see that, that. And I think that that's something that it's... Um, so, there's there's all kinds of movies where you just like, you really want a sequel to it and you don't get it. Mm-hmm. And just like there's many of films you're like, you could have stopped. <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe you should have stopped. Um <laughs> You know, it's it's, and I think one of the great examples is like Buckaroo Banzai, right? Buckaroo oh, Banzai yeah. will return in. Yes. And you know, as time goes by, you know that Buckaroo Banzai is never returning in, at least not with that cast, Did, not with that story. Didn't they do? Didn't they end up doing World Crime League as a graphic novel? I can't I, remember. I want to say that there's just... there's some kind of graphic novel out there, Buckaroo Banzai. And I want to say it's it's something like that. I don't know. Uh, D. Pensack in the chat says, Just so Afterlife a few hours ago, I felt this film ref- respected the previous films, the lore, the audience far better than The Force Awakens did. So I think the... the, the so what this film, I think, really does in the course of the story structure is it gives you an audience with however whoever slight they wrote the mom you you get a sense of the family dynamic 
and you get a sense of who these people are and you get a sense of the fact that they're not happy. And so they're, they're coming, they're coming from a place of need, right? They're, so they're, they're, they're missing something, right? Which is a, uh, you see this a lot in fiction. Somebody, somebody needs something. They need to go on a quest. They need to go, they need to grow up. They need to, you know, fight back, whatever it is. They have a need. And this ends up and they go to a place where they're a fish out of water. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the, the absent parent, and you've got, uh, the teenager coming of age and you've got the kid who doesn't fit in and you, there's all these different pieces of, of different kinds of story mm-hmm. that all fit well together. Force Awakens and films like films where you have these big, like a lot of genre pictures, um, a lot of times are real easy to slot into real specific kinds of things and stay in that lane. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think that, that works well with some of these 80s kids or uh, 80s young people films is that they were a lot of times a more than one different kind of story idea put together yeah yeah i'd I'd say that's an accurate way to to describe it because you look at the goonies the goonies is is action adventure it's uh it's kids movie it's comedy it's um kind of a coming of age type of thing uh Mm -hmm. it's a pirate movie of sorts, mm-hmm. you know, as there, yeah, there's a lot of different things. And I think that's something that some, some films nowadays don't quite get. And I don't know if it's related to a topic that I talked about over on live from the bunker where, and we've talked about it here a little bit, this, this absence of understanding the classics when it comes to being creative you know, there, there's there's an entire generation that all they've read is Harry Potter and Twilight, and they've not read Shakespeare, they've not read Homer, they've not read C.S. Forrester. You know, it, it, there's a there's a, a a deficiency in understanding all of these other types of stories that are out there because you've only been reading this one book for the last twenty years of your life, and the the things that the current movies do, they generally, they generally stay in that box. Like you're talking about. Well, it's easier to stay inside the box. Yeah. And I think that that's unfortunate. Uh, Well, okay. And I think some of it comes down to the economic model too, in that, we've got so many niche stories are being told because we have the opportunity to sell so many niche stories. Right. And not only that, we're films don't stick around the way they used to. So if you wanted your film to stay in the theater for six months, eight months, like they used to stay in theaters, you had to make sure that film had legs and it appealed to a really broad audience. That was your kind of your goal was to get as many people to get into the theater and stay there. Yeah. Because your studio may not have a picture lined up to come out next month. You may have six months in between when your studio is putting out the, this movie or that movie. And I mean, some of it just comes down to the economics. It's like, we didn't have multiplexes 
um, for a lot of these these iconic a lot of these iconic films were in playing in one or two or three screen theaters. Yeah, and, you didn't have yeah you didn't have it like the like you had now. Well, and and the other the other thing too is your movie theaters. You had more than one more than one brand of movie theater. I mean, you had general cinemas and AMC and Cinemark and all this. And now, now these multiplexes come in and they're the only game in town in some, in some sense, in, you know, some, some cities, you don't have as much of a choice between what kind of movie theater you're going to. Oh, sure. Well, and I think that you end up with your, your smaller single screen or, or one or two screen places are your indie theaters. Mm-hmm. They're the folks that are independently owned. There are, they're showing, you know, smaller pictures, foreign films, you know, they're, if you've got an indie theater in your town, support it, folks, they're putting out, they're going to show you some of the more interesting entertainment because they don't have, they don't necessarily have the block, the, the theater chains don't necessarily, the, no, the studios don't necessarily want or need the little theaters, which gives them some flexibility. Yeah. Um, But I think that, that what this film ends up doing um, is, taking the world that Ghostbusters is set in and treating it like a, it's a place that you can live in. And I think that that Ghostbusters 2 kind of does that. The, the various sequel ideas that didn't happen might have done that. Um, but I think you have the opportunity to 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 circle back to those ideas because one of the things that we had heard long while ago was the 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 idea that uh, that Dan Aykroyd had of some films taking place with the Ghostbusters franchises where you could actually go out in various different other places like Ghostbusters sure. Chicago, Ghostbusters Dallas. And and with the scene that we've got at the end, you have an opportunity that you can do that and you can broaden the scope of what kind of Ghostbusters movies you can tell if that's the direction they want to go. They've left that door open because they've established that 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 Ernie Hudson's character now has this financial empire. He could finance the Ghostbusters franchise and turn it into something again. It, it was like I said in in my review. I think the the mix of nostalgia and uh, new stuff is done just in the, in the right amount of balance that you can you can move forward with this and be able to tell new stories with this while still honoring the the legacy of what's come before. Uh, Carl, Carl's got an interesting question with regard to the end credits, uh, the, that last scene where, the, where we're back in the hook and ladder eight, mm-hmm. um, because the containment unit is still on and it still has something in it. And Carl's wondering if that might be Slimer. Hello, Mazerus. I, I figure yeah, there's a good chance. I think, uh, um, I, so interestingly enough, of course, there's been like, you know, oh, you've got this this Slimer knockoff in this movie. Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, <laughs> guys, 
you know, and again, it comes back to the you can't win thing because right. if it was Slimer, they'd be complaining about it being Slimer. It's Slimer again, yeah. Well, and and somebody noticed one of the one of the ghosts that we see in this one. Now, if you talk, you're talking about a deep dive here, but the the ghost that has the the eyeball that leads with it, that's a toy from the cartoon. Oh yeah. And the and and it's been pointed out too that the gunner's seat in Ecto One is a modified element that first showed up in the cartoons as well. There's a, right. there's an actual right. there's an actual I think diecast metal um, model the, a, a toy that came out that had the gunner seat on the top. Uh, right. So it's not exactly the same, but that idea and apparently. Uh, the gunner seat dates all the way back to planning for for Ghostbusters two. What they were going to do with Ecto one A, and they ended up not doing the gunner seat. But so that's that's been in the idea phase somewhere, all the way back. So right, yeah. Uh, Mazers does point out. Remember the ghost got released in Ghostbusters one. Remember you know because they shut down the containment unit and everything exploded and, and everybody escaped. But as as it's pointed out in this film, they did do ghost ghost busting past what we saw in Ghostbusters one and two because the idea, you know, they're, where they're saying that Venkman thought we did our job too well, you know, and mm-hmm. eventually, eventually there weren't any ghosts. So the there is a there is a way that you can explain something still in the containment unit. Although that really doesn't look like a Starbucks, mm. you know, because, you know, Dan said we lost the firehouse. It's a Starbucks now. <laughs> it didn't look like it. Well, you know, not every Starbucks is in a successful location. I well, mean, that's true. And there is actually a critical number of Starbucks before you actually read the, meet the Starbucks apocalypse level. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there was that joke for the longest time. There was a Starbucks on every corner. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they just consolidated. There's a super Starbucks just right around the corner. They moved to a bigger location. It's a, it's a meta Starbucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I, I tell you what, we're, we're, we're getting close to our hour and, and your, your internet is all fizz fuzzy. Do we I know? I'm looking at this up? going, I mean, the camera, the camera is nice and crisp, but, but whatever's coming. Not on this side. Very, I know. It's I weird. Can, I can see that. Yeah. Well, do we want to pick this up with a part two next week or do we want to keep going? Well, I'm fine with keeping going. Uh, I'm going to turn off my camera here for a second to see if maybe just uh, we can <laughs> trick it into it's a little bit better, uh, being a little bit better. Yeah, although not perfect, but it is better. Oh. <laughs> Technology. Technology, you know, it's fun. Uh, sometimes it's sometimes it's your friend. Sometimes it's not. So I think. I think when you when you get into the whole return of Gozer and you've got the dogs and and everything everything that you get in that last third to me it's not exactly ring theory almost back and forth where where one mirrors the the other you know like right. you know, like sure. the, in the analysis of the first six Star Wars films but I do think that having having this 
as an escalation because if we had gotten another one, maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to see where Egon would be the one to stay fixated on the dangers, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the threat that's still yet to come type of thing. Now, Ray was kind of like, you know, okay, we did, we did everything. We beat Gozer already, you know, that's, we're done with that. And, and maybe Egon gets a little bit obsessive and there's a falling out and he takes all the stuff. I, that's the part that I kind of had a tough time with just from the standpoint of, of how all of the characters were developed and, and set up. I could see Egon taking all of the stuff, but I don't. I don't know that I could buy him doing it and leaving everybody high and dry. I had a problem with that. So I think that, that one of the, the things that the film doesn't do particularly well is it, it leaves you, well, maybe it does do it well, and maybe that's the problem. It doesn't explain a whole lot. Yeah. And to some degree, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you, you didn't you don't need Dan Aykroyd to sit down and say, so back in 1993, <laughs> you know, you don't need yeah. that. But at the same time, if you if when you're staring, we've talked about staring directly at things before. Uh, but when you do stare directly at it and you do ask those questions, you run into the fact that there's, you know, there's a gap in information that you can get glimpses of mm-hmm. because of course you've got, you've got the relationship with his, you know, his relationship with his daughter Yeah, where something happened. And yet, and you can, if you want to extrapolate, if you want to you know, play the imagination game, you could see Egon becoming obsessed with protecting everyone and pushing he wasn't he wasn't the most um personable person. No, I know, but the the way they've got this set up and and when I the way I describe it in the review, Callie, the mom, she's almost a cynical parody of all of the Disney single moms from the 90s and the and the 2000s, you know, because you have you know, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, and, and, you know, Hannah Montana is a dad, but it's still a single parent. And there's this, you know, even even looking at things like Finding Nemo, for example, or Chicken Little, you know, it, the Disney model is the single parent, right? Well, usually a single dad and mom is gone for reasons. Yeah, usually mom's dead. But if mom, <laughs> if it's if it's a single mom, dad was a deadbeat. If it's a single dad it's because mom's dead. They do have a problem with dead moms in the Disney universe. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking at this and I'm thinking I don't like this character. And I you know C- Carrie Coon does does fine with what she's got, but she's not a likable character. I don't have any sympathy for her. So when she has this 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 rapprochement at the end with Egon, you know that that final moment where they get they get to you know mend fences and whatnot. I'm not as emotionally invested in that as I am with 
the the four guys standing there. You know, the, with think, the, with Dan. Unfortunately, well, we we have an advantage of that of that shorthand of having that relationship with those four guys from before. Yeah, we already we've got that character work has already been done, and and I think this is an example of, and, and one of the downsides. When you have a story like this, and you're focusing on the kids, and you're telling that kind of story, and you and the the adults become periphery. Her best moments are her interactions with Paul Rudd and her best moments with the interactions with Paul Rudd are the ones where they let the film be funny. Yeah. And have these two. And, and I think the film, the film, because it isn't just a comedy, it's not a punchline, 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 punchline. Um, it, the moments where it is leaning into let's be funny or silly, mm-hmm. um, when they work, they really stand out. And that whole that whole first little bit where they're talking about, you know, uh, I guess the second time they met, where she's talking about we don't have anything to eat. Yeah, it's and a it's a meat cute. It's a meat cute, and it works really well. And it makes you wish you had more of them developing that. Mm-hmm. But but they but that stuff is pushed aside for the kids' development and the kids' story, which yeah. makes sense. Because they're the focus of the story. Yeah. And I think that that's both, both good and bad because you end up with, with looking at the mom and going, there should be more here. Well, and, and Carl makes a good point. He says, I thought Paul Rudd was somehow the protagonist when he wasn't in half the movie. And, and pa- Paul... <sighs> yes and no. Uh, because when when the first marketing came out, I think a lot of people were thinking that this was going to be Finn Wolfhard's movie. There was going to be Finn Wolfhard and and Paul, you know, Paul Rudd would be the 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 one who who manages to get all of the gear because he understands it more. You know, he's he's he knows what it all is. And you're right. He is a supporting character in this. And it is about the kids. And I think really it's it's interesting to watch the kids develop through this through this story because Phoebe really kind of comes into her own. She's been the outcast, she's the outsider. But I like the fact that she's not a Mary Sue-ish character either because the first time we see her when she's messing with the electrical in the apartment and she blows whatever, you know, circuit and I can fix that. You know, she's making mistakes right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a flawed character. I think McKenna Grace does really well with her performance on this because oh, she's, this is, this she's is her learning movie. who her family is, what her heritage is, what the legacy of, of Egon Spengler is like. Why didn't you ever tell, tell me? That my grandfather was a Ghostbuster, you know. This means something now because, probably, because it means something to Gruberson. It means something to podcast. It means something to the outside world that the Ghostbusters were heroes. They were special. And but it also, she, I think, it also does something that the second film tried to do and. I think it was a problem for a lot of people with the second film is that's just the video is just not <laughs> cooperating. Um, I'm just going to make the video go away. Um, so the second film, you have this sort of, it, it, there, it, there's this disconnect 
where you're like, wait a minute, did everybody forget what happened in the first movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it felt awkward and weird. Here, decades have gone by and ghosts have not been a thing. So it's, it, it, it has slipped away. It is not something that the, the kids today don't know about because mm-hmm. there's, it's. And it's done it, in a way that's it more. Happened. It's done in a way that's more believable than the way they did it in The Force Awakens. And it's the same amount of time period. It's 30 years. You know, and and 30 years from Return of the Jedi to The Force Awakens, everybody's completely forgotten about the Jedi and and Luke Skywalker and everything. It's all devolved into mythology. Whereas here, you have the generational thing, but it's the, you know, this is before my time. I didn't even know about it to look it up on the Internet. But now you're showing me this stuff on the Internet. Now I'm going to find out about it. And it's handled better here. Yeah. I think because it's cool. you know it's Paul Rudd looking at because he knows he was he's he's been there and of course podcast when it gets reminded oh yeah that's the that's the the New York cross rip is what he called it so mm. he's heard of it but he didn't have any context for it and now this now you have this ghost trap hold on this is a real thing who are you again? Now, we got that in the trailer, but we didn't get Gruberson asking that question in the movie, which I thought was curious because I think that's a that's a significant thing where it starts to click. You start to get the wheels turning. Who are you? And Phoebe is, you know, I, I'm nobody. I'm just a kid. I'm just 12. I don't know anything. And by the time you get to the end of the movie... She's Egon Spengler's granddaughter and she's a ghostbuster. You know, she she gets that that full arc from being nobody standing in the corner, nobody likes her, nobody cares about her, she doesn't have any friends, she barely gets along with her mother, and now she's got she's got a legacy to to preserve and and live up to. Well, and along the way, we actually get to see her develop and react to what's going on around her in a way that from the moment we're introduced to her, like you said, we, we see somebody who is incredibly curious, mm-hmm. willing to make mistakes and, 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 and not necessarily someone who, who connects with other people a lot like her grandfather. Right. Um, but very smart. Somebody who is, despite the fact they it's like, this is a terrible joke. I'm going to tell you <laughs> some of those terrible jokes are actually kind of funny. Yeah, they are. And yeah. I think that they did a nice job with balancing that between an actual, this is in fact a terrible joke and okay, that was a bad joke, but the, I grinned. The funny um, thing is the second that we were in the movie theater last night. Yeah. We saw it. I want to say we, uh, we, we went with James Thursday night and saw it preview night mm-hmm. and then we saw it last night and last night, there were a lot more laughs at all of her jokes than there were Thursday night. And I don't know why that was. I think there were a few more people in, in Sunday night, but all of those jokes to a certain extent are funny. They're cornball, but you know, you recognize that's what she's trying to do is she doesn't understand humor the way everybody else does. 
except in the abstract. It's like when you know Spock come, looks up at, at McCoy in Star Trek Four. He says, "A joke is a story with a humorous climax." It's that kind of it's that same kind of thing that we're running into with Phoebe. She understands what a joke is intellectually, but <laughs> she's not quite able to pull it off and she even understands that she's got that hang up which mm-hmm. i thought was good i think that and, and i haven't seen too many people talk about this but um i'm curious to see how much over time this plays out that um phoebe comes across as somebody who's potentially on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. yeah uh, and, and and her grandfather as well um, and, and I think that this is something that, and you and I have talked about this before with dealing with, with, um, mental and emotional mis- issues on film and how Hollywood doesn't have the best track record <laughs> right. with, with realism. And there's a couple of things I think that I, I really liked here is that when you look at the original film in the context of the original film, you have some pretty archetypal characters, mm-hmm. right? You right. Bill Murray is playing the horny con man, essentially. And that, that's, that's the role. Right. 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 You know, um, and, and, you know, you've got sort of the gullible, likable, um, uh, enthusiastic guy who's excited about everything. You've got the nerd scientist, you know, you've got, the everyman character. Yeah, th- these are all kind of just, you know, stock characters. And it's the actors who played the part who made those really breathe. Here, you have a character who is, um, you know, this could be, you You could really, when, when you see her play the part, it really makes it look like this is something that she's, this is part of her personality in a way that we would think about it differently now. So you think about it and you look at her, you know, she's, she maybe has, you know, uh, um, something going on in in maybe a, a Asperger's or, or 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 autism spectrum, and it's not a driving force of the story. It's just part of who she is, and she does just goes about her life, yeah. which I think, in some degree, is is what Hollywood generally doesn't get right. Is they make. So, okay, I'm not saying it's not a big deal. It's often an incredibly big deal, and it's an important deal. And and the folks that we know, and you, our listeners know who who deal with it, know that it's important. But just a character who this is just how they are, and they are just living their life. Right. Sometimes I really like that, and I think it works here because where it was in the context of the comedy of the first film and sort of the broad stroke characters it's not as important but when you're doing it sort of this as much as you can root a ghostbusters film in this world in the real world um it just feels very natural yeah so she's not she you you understand how she might come across to kids her age as being odd and she might not necessarily be have a lot of friends but she's a personable smart curious kid who sits there and goes, I'm just going to try and figure out the world around me. I know, look, it's got ghosts. And she understands her own shortcomings, too. I mean, she she recognizes that she doesn't fit in. She even she even mentions to podcast, 
you know, because they're talking about uh, Gruberson's interest in mom. And yeah. she's like, well, yes, of course I'm horrified. In you know, but I don't. I don't express emotions very much. Inside, I'm vomiting. You know, it's that mm -hmm. it, she she gets where what her what her limits are, what her limitations are, uh, and I thought that was kind of r really interesting to see that play out, especially that interplay between her and and podcast. And like Carl says, podcast was very funny uh, because he's the Ray stance of the kids. Oh yeah, you know, you don't have a complete one-to-one -one match with everybody because I don't really think that there's a Vinkman in this group. Do we but, want a teenage Vink Vinkman well, in this group? No, no, we don't. no. But, I mean, Trevor is interested in a girl, so maybe he's the Vinkman in that way, and, and Lucky could be Dana, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's a stretch. But well, you've and got, I think that you know, avoiding... Phoebe, well, that, that's really what... The problem that the, the the reboot did is that they really tried to make the same kind of characters. Yeah. That's one of the flaws of that film is that they have the Venkman, they have the Spang Egon, they have, you know, they they go pretty much down the checklist and say, let's make that character again. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is that you better have the right script and yeah. and even then even if you have the perfect script and the perfect cast it's not going to work because it's not those original people and i think that you can you can find um and it's an example of that um if you don't like the new star trek films or the newer star trek films since it's the film series is on hiatus um i hear we're getting another one i keep hearing that i keep hearing um, that yeah but the thing is, is that, you know, the, the cast of those films, they cast those films very well. And I think that they did a fine job of, of, of bringing, you know, the ideas of the original performers in their performances. They did a fine job. Overall, they did a great job. On the other hand, you're always going to be comparing that person to the original actor. Yeah. You're always going to be preparing that performance to the original performance. And sometimes that can be a thing of sometimes, honestly, it can be a thing of joy when it gets, when it really, really works. But most of the time, almost all of the time, um, trying to recapture that exact thing just is, is not going to happen. It's just not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. However much you want it to. However well, much you want it to. And I think I think having well when you get into archetypes, for example, you know, we've talked about that before with regard to, you know, the King Arthur and, and Luke Skywalker and that sort of thing, where you have a kind of character. Um you have echoes of Ray in podcast without podcast being a carbon copy of Ray. And I think it works better that way than it would be if you just miniaturized Ray Stance, Dan Aykroyd into this kit. Oh, and absolutely. Phoebe's the same way. Yes, she's like Egon, but she actually interacts with people a little bit better in how she acknowledges her shortcomings, she's she's self-aware enough to sit there and say, I'm going to be awkward around you and 
that's that's the way it's going to be. Uh, Egon was not that self-aware. Egon was just Egon, and he had the things that were interesting interesting to him, and his you know his collections of molds for spores and fungus, and never even never even acknowledged or recognized what was going on around him in terms of interpersonal relationships and, and dealing with people that much. So you have variations on the type of character without having the, the photocopy of the character. And I think that works better uh, in this film. Well, I think that, I think the, so there's a sweet spot for a lot of this stuff, right? For the, for the nostalgia, for the coming of age story, for, giving us characters which resemble or can, or at least kind of fit loosely into, into expected molds um, and yet are their own thing. And this is not a perfect movie guys. I mean, if you haven't seen it yet or or, why are you listening to spoilers? Right. (laughs) Uh, But if you have, if you have it and and you, and, and it didn't work for you, don't, don't misunderstand. This is not a perfect movie. There's I, like we said, there you've got a, a a mom character who feels like there's scenes on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and I I don't think anyone in this film turns in a bad performance. Let me be very clear. I think the actors all do a fantastic job, and I grinned a lot in this film, and that tells me that it did hit those sweet spots more often than it missed. Um, is there a certain amount of you know? We wish there should be more information given, like especially when you look at deal with the with the the four Ghostbusters themselves and having that, you know, why why didn't we talk all this time? Why you know where's yeah. at the same time you know that's do you grind the film to a halt at the climax to have that discussion? Well, and and the other part of it too is is that that ending piece where you've got all four of them together and there's the there's the callbacks you know are you a god and there's the hesitation it's like ray it's like yes yes we're gods we're all gods there's a there's a twist on that because you know what's coming oh sure and when when they get blown back against the car and Ray sits there and goes, I don't remember this being this painful. And Winston says, I do. <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, we, we're acknowledging the passage of time, but we're doing it in a way that doesn't, like you say, it doesn't grind to a halt. And let's talk about where we've been for the last 30 years. Um, and it's and it's done in a way that it's kind of like with Star Trek, Two, where they acknowledge we're getting older. You know, you know, Kirk has a birthday and and he's depressed because he's got a birthday and he's not he's not the captain of the ship. And there's emotional weight to that. And maybe maybe that's a shortcoming in that we didn't get as much of that as we might have gotten if if Ramus had been alive. Mm-hmm. But when 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 Ray looks over at him. And he's his face is just crumpled, and he says, "I'm sorry." And you just see it. It's like when when we talk about the relationship between Kirk and Spock, or or Superman and Batman. You know, mm-hmm. the Superman versus Batman fight 
that's in that movie that Zack Snyder made doesn't work because they haven't earned that. You know, this, the death scene, Spock's death scene in Star Trek II works a lot because we've got a history of, of so many years with these characters, these actors playing these characters. So you see it in Star Trek Beyond, or Star Trek Into Darkness, rather, and it's, it's, a, it, it's a bad, cheap knockoff imitation that they haven't earned. And in this right. particular time, when Ray looks over at Harold uh, at at Egon and says, "I'm sorry," you you can feel the weight of that, just in those two words, and the look that Egon gives him is like, "I get it, I it's it's fine." You know, you've got that 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 resolution of conflict that they didn't figure maybe they'd get, right. I see Midnight's Edge after dark in there. Hello, Tom. Good to see you in there as well. He says he loved the movie. I don't know that I loved it, but I, I liked it a, a lot. It's not like you said, it's not a perfect film, but I think it's as good as we could get given all of the elements that we have to work with because Harold Ramis is no longer with us. And I think Bob Gunton, this is this was a surprise when we were looking at the at the credits, and it says, you know, the dirt farmer. Bob Gunton and I thought really that's that's interesting because you know they do CG on his face at the end but Bob Gunton for those of you who are not familiar with the name you'll recognize him he was he's a character actor but he played the warden in the Shawshank Redemption that's probably what everybody's going to remember him for most and it it actually kind of works because you see you see photographs of Gunton now and and the structure is there physically and uh, somebody mentioned Olivia Wilde earlier in the chat. I didn't realize Olivia Wilde's playing Gozer. I, I, you know what? I <laughs> knew it was her because I saw that she was in the cast list playing the part. And But at the same time, it didn't really... I thought it was... It was evoked so much of the original that it just... I never got a sense of I'm watching Olivia Wilde. Yeah. Which, yeah. which is great. Which is great. Well, I totally didn't recognize her. I wasn't even thinking about that I, because I didn't. I didn't look at a at a cast list ahead of time. But it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, well, they got somebody who looks fairly like Gozer looked in the first movie. Mm-hmm. It's not an exact match, but again, what? you're coming into this the third act of a three act trilogy, and Gozer comes back with much more power. Mm-hmm. So okay, it's gonna look a little bit different, and you've got all of the, all of the the sparklies and the lightning and the and the who's he what's it around her that she didn't have before, because she's got more power. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought it worked. Uh, uh, Tom says eight out of ten. The experience was ten out of ten. I think that's gonna make a big difference too. Is you know, so I think that in terms of the actual film itself. Considering the, the the story stuff you and I have talked about, some of the character stuff, I'd probably give it seven out of ten for story. For story, yeah. Um, well, actually, let me break this down a little bit better. Um, I'd probably give it seven out of ten for story. I'd probably give it nine out of ten for the casting and the actors and the work they do and what they've got. Really, really, so much of this film 
one of the reasons I liked it so much is that I actually even even with 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 a thinner mom character than you want, the performances in this film were really good. Yeah, this is one of those films where the where I really was consciously aware of how much I liked what they were doing, what these actors were doing. Yeah, but in terms of a emotion in terms of in terms of of hitting me in that sweet spot for nostalgia and yet doing something new that's that's tough because i think they did a really good job with that yeah and it was it's tough it is so tough guys to get it right we've talked we not the first movie we've talked about that hard well and and carl makes the point too the acting was very powerful for egon not as tarkin cgi and i and and that actually was a concern for me going into it because i i figured they would have to do something with egon to explain harold harold ramus not being in the movie i mean he's he's not with us anymore you know, he's been gone for seven years. So that's an obstacle then for you have to you have to explain that. You've got to set that up somehow. And we had the first that first scene where he's he's you know, he's at Evo Shandor's minds and he's driving the truck and everything's done in shadow and it's all obscured. I thought, oh, this is this is a very clever way to do this, to set mm-hmm. this up. And the beginning of the movie is Egon's death. And I thought it's kind of like Star Trek. I I hate to keep going back to Star Trek two, but the death of Spock where you have it at the beginning, because there was such a hue and cry and people were, were, you know, how could you kill Spock? So they fake you out at the beginning. Aha, we killed Spock here, but he's not really dead. So the right. emotional the emotional impact of when he actually does die at the end is harder because yeah spoilers of Star Trek too, um, but now you have he's gone at the beginning and now you've got everybody having to deal with that fact not just mom and the kids but when Ray finds out you can just see him just deflate mm-hmm. and he's like oh crap we have unfinished business. But it sets up unfinished business for Egon to stick around. And you know that he's there because the little PKE meter is going and, hey, there's a spirit here. You know what's happening. And then when he does show up, they could have really messed that up. Oh, yeah. That, that's so fraught with with terror to even think about. Because, you know, it, and, and that goes back to, to a bigger question of using an image of a deceased performer to get another performance out. I mean, we had, you know, the, like, you know, you know, Carl mentions Tarkin in Rogue One, and we've also got uh, Carrie Fisher in uh, Rise of Skywalker. And a number of years ago, and I, I, this was, oh, Lord, um, probably 25, 30 years ago, they were playing with this idea with uh, TV commercials. You know, right, Cl- yeah. Clark Gable and John Wayne and these these characters, you know, these, these actors. Bogart, yeah. yeah, they'd show up in these TV commercials. And I'm like, can they actually do that? Should they even, why are they doing this? But now the technology is such 
that you can actually, instead of just taking clips from their other stuff and reworking it and repurposing it, now you have the ability to actually make a brand new John Wayne movie with stuff that he never did and you just paste his face on. This whole this whole face replacement stuff. Scary sure. stuff. Well, and you I think what they did well here is that they let so much of it be interpreted by looks. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't, you know, suddenly Egon had a monologue. Right. I, I thought that was smart to keep him quiet. And I think it actually was well, and ghosts don't really have a whole lot of history of talking <laughs> in the Ghostbusters universe for the movies. Yeah. You know, making noises, sure, but talking. But even then it was it was less about and this is this is tough to do with this with a computer generated image. The eyes mm-hmm. and selling I'm sure I'm sure there's a real actor's eyes underneath those eyes. Well, it's Bob Gunton. Right. They did they didn't they didn't build that they didn't build those eyes in a computer. Right. They put a layer on top of them, but they didn't build those eyes because those eyes sell you. And that's a problem that's a problem with CGI people, is that you know, eyes are tough. Mm-hmm. Um eyes and mouths. There's and that what was that thing? Uh the un if Uncanny Valley. The, the Uncanny Valley disturbs us so much. Doesn't that in, imply, doesn't that suggest that at some point in our history, we encountered the the aliens who didn't quite look human, so now this is a, a, a genetic memory that the Uncanny Valley well, so kind of creeps enough. us out because... <laughs> So, well, I mean, you if you if you really want to if you want to run down that route, you could have things like you know early man and the Neanderthals when they coexisted, they didn't mm-hmm. look like us. Yeah, uh, they looked a lot like us so much that, of course, it was that they you know we bred together, but still. Yeah. Um. So I think that I think that what they what they do very cannily here, very smart, is they let the emotion be portrayed by body language, by eyes. By the other character saying things. Yes. And letting him just be there and serve the role that he's serving at the end of the film, which is, I couldn't leave till I knew you were safe. Right. We we have a job to finish. We have to save the world. But I also have to resolve these issues with my family and with my my friends who are my family uh and, and you can see that in the look on his face you know oh it's yeah like, there's there's so much regret baked into that and the idea that again we have we have a younger character who can't express herself necessarily the way that other people expect her to yeah and here you have somebody like egon who it wasn't that egon was insensitive it wasn't that Egon didn't care about other people. It's just that's not how he expressed himself. Right. And it didn't make him a bad person. It made him different than the people around him. The- and it it works. I mean, here it's such a it's and it's one of those moments you're getting to the end of the film and you get that. And you almost, I mean, I almost got that little lump in my throat thing. Because they played it so well, and I'm like, yeah. "Oh, good guys, that that's nice." 
check me on this. Didn't didn't Egon and Janine have a thing in the second movie? There was the implication of that, yes. And honestly, I think we got a little bit implication of that to be at the beginning of this film, where yeah, we but, where we see. But who's Callie's mom? Well, you know that's. I mean, uh, that's, that's where a, we come into this. That's coming come into the, into the story problems with the film. Yeah, is there's there's a hole in Callie's story that the film maybe maybe there literally is a scene. Maybe there's some sort of thing where because for time they decide we're going to focus on the kids because I mean that really is I think the w- biggest weakness of her character is that she's just not enough of a focus and consequently she gets fuzzy. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, you know, there, there's a hole there in her story that we don't have an answer to. And unfortunately it stands out. Some of those holes, you know, you don't, they, they disappear. You don't pay attention to them because they're, they're not important, but at the same time, the whole, so much of the film revolves around Egon when he's not even when he's not on the screen he's the driving force for uh, how this story actually starts right he's the driving force for how the where why these people are here and he's the one who brings everything together at the end so it matters when his relationship with his daughter isn't given when there's a when there's a hole in their story that you can see Right. And that's that's probably honestly that's probably the biggest weakness of the film. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I I think there's there's a lot there that, you know, how did she get to this you know, how did she get to this point where it's just her and the kids? There's no mention of mom. There's no, you know, the the kid's dad gets mentioned in that one dinner scene with her and and Gruberson. And he, you know, he, and it's kind of lame too. You know, you have a kid that you can't connect with, so you're going to leave your entire family. That uh, Callie's whole story just feels scattershot. It's let's, let's, uh, let's pull pieces out of a, you know, pull, pull things out of a hat. And here's, here's her character. She's kind of like, I mean, I think, and I think this is where the, the, story structure kind of that's that building blocks of an 80s coming of age movie um really lets the film down because that's fairly that's not uncommon for one of those 80s movies where the kids are the focus and the parents are out of focus you can have like i'm thinking what is it was it the sandlot with the baseball and Mm -hmm. the whole thing and, and how dad was just awful and and do you, I, I don't I don't and maybe someone can correct me on this I don't remember ever getting a really good reason why he was just that awful, and there were a lot of films like that where it's like, mom's an alcoholic and well dad and dad is full of rage and I don't know why that's who these were, characters are in this movie they were escape movies as much as it was uh, coming of age because when you're coming of age you're able to escape you're able to get out you're able to get away from right. that circumstance that situation it's kind of like right. you know you grow up and you become an adult you can leave the nest and the problem with making a character like Callie as sympathetic as I think they want her to be in this film 
because it's clear that that they give her enough that it's clear that she loves her kids mm-hmm. and that, that you have this burgeoning romance with with between her and Paul Rudd. But at the same time, she would have benefited with about 10 more minutes of story. Yeah, I think Maybe that's 10. about right. Um, because I think that, you know, 10, 10 minutes is a, is, is a fairly sizable chunk of time for dialogue. Um, but I think that it would have, it would have helped to give us a little more. And, but, and, and, not, maybe, and not 10 maybe, minutes in one chunk spread out through right. the whole thing. No, 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 you no, get no, little no. bits and pieces. Yeah. No, I do not. Re- I do not require a 10 minute monologue. <laughs> um, but I think, I think that, I think that may be a, and I'm curious. I'm really curious. I'm, I'm, I want to see if I can find something on this or maybe we'll have to wait till the, <laughs> till the Blu-ray comes out. But I'm curious if maybe they just, when they were writing the script, they sat there and went, we actually can't come up with a good reason for this. And we're just going to say it happened. Yeah. And because, because what you don't want to do is paint Egon as the bad guy. Right. Which is kind of what, kind of what, um, uh, Callie tries to do. Well, no, I think that what they don't, but I think that they, they, they get to a point where it kind of works where her perception of him is a, is as a bad right. guy. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's what I mean. And, her experience tells her he was he was this kind of person rather than than what he actually was. Right. And I think that they may have they may have run into the problem and I, I have written some scripts and <laughs> I've written, you know, you run into these problems sometimes you're like um what is this person's motivation? Yeah. Why are they behaving? And you sit there and go, well, um, look over there. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is that a squirrel? Uh, and you hope that no- nobody notices that you didn't really give this character a good motivation. And you can, since we've talked about Star Wars films a fair amount, you get to the, when if you're going to bring back you know, the emperor, if you're going to bring back Palpatine and give him a boring motivation. Right. Why bring back that villain? And that, and that um, actually raises another point because this is something that Mindy pointed out that Ghostbusters afterlife gets right. That the force awakens that any, that the star Wars sequels completely botched is you have the original four ish all together in a scene together in front of the camera together. You know, you've got Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and, and Ernie Hudson are all there. And if Harold Ramis was alive, he'd be there too. Whereas right. you get over in the star Wars sequels and we never see Luke, Han, and Leia together ever in any of those three films. Right. Which is a crime. Well, and I think that, and, and you see a comment there, uh, her seeing the bulletin board at her photo timeline through the years made it all right in my book. And, and I think that that's, that's, but that's shorthand, but it is shorthand, but it's a visual shorthand yeah. that, 
when you can get it right, you can show connections between characters that you don't necessarily get through words. And uh, honestly, that whole that whole period of the film, that whole section of the movie, where so much is based on people looking at each other and and evidence of their interactions with each other and, and how they feel about each other. However, however she feels like she was abandoned by her father, she loves him. I don't get that sense until she sees the the wall montage. Well, I yeah, get up until that point her her love for her father is sitting all the way in the back of the bus behind bitter dregs of depression and and my life is going nowhere. That's what I get from that character. And again, well, and it's, it's shorthand, but it 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 makes that character feel not quite as dimensional as she otherwise should be. Oh yeah, I mean, like I said, there's there's ten minutes of maybe not even ten minutes of her having a conversation, and this is this is a conversation between adults. The mm-hmm. kids are off doing their own thing, right? And they're sitting down, and she's doing. You know, they're doing another meet cute moment and he asks her about her dad and there's a long pause and she says something funny and Paul Rudd just looks at her. I'm writing this script and she goes, <laughs> and then she just starts talking and she gets it out and it's maybe a minute, two minutes of actual dialogue. Yeah. But the, the scene is, the scene is longer. Maybe the scene's four or five minutes and then we jump to the next thing with the kids but we get that sense of of what she's missing that she gets back at the end of the film yeah because we get that sense that she's gotten it back we get that sense of of having that connection restored for her Mm -hmm. but we don't get the sense of what it's what we know the broad strokes of what she she's lost you and i are parents right so we understand that you know if we were to lose that connection with our kid if we were to lose our connection with our parents um and and not because we've you know they've they've passed away or you know it's it's that disconnection where we you just don't talk to them anymore Mm. Yeah. Where you just aren't, you don't have that ability. They're, they're there out in the world, but you don't communicate. Um, and, and, and there's pain at the heart of it. To get that back at the end, it's a really great little moment. And they all do. That's, again, that's, I think that's one of the reasons that this film really plays out the way it does in terms of hitting me the way it hit me and how much I enjoyed it, is that those emotions felt valid. Yeah, it was it was very genuine at that point. It well, yeah, it wasn't a hey guys, he wants you to feel good at this, this moment. It's yeah. we're gonna do a thing. We think it's gonna make you feel good. Oh, it did excellent. <laughs> well, and I think that you get some of that as well in that last after credit scene as well because, and and this almost feels like a cheat, but 
most of the people are leaving the theater. They're going to be gone. There are going to be a lot of people that go watch this movie that have no idea that that scene is there. Mm -hmm. And depending on what the studio decides to do, that could be this nice little sense of closure for Janine because we don't get closure with Janine on the farm no, we the don't. way we do with everybody else. And we get sort of a resolution with Dana in that scene with Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray. I mean, we don't right. really necessarily need any resolution between her and Egon, but Janine still needs that moment. And at the end, we get that. And yeah, it's it's not as important as with the guys and the family, but but Janine gets that moment, and we also get the setup that allows us to expand out into sequels using using Winston as the entry point now for for all of the rest of it. And I actually made the made the joke in my in my review. It could very well be this is how possibly you could reintroduce Kristen Wiig's character from the 2016 film as the physicist, as the scientist that maybe, you know, maybe now you can reintroduce that group as a franchise and do it in a way that's organic to this trilogy as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel like like Paul Feig did. Because well, and, people and hated I think that, that movie. You, I mean, and I'm not saying you need to do that. No, no. But if I, they, if they're going to do that, that would be a way that they could do it and explain. Okay, well, you know, we'll put them in Chicago, and they're they're the they're the first franchise. Well, yeah. I mean, you you could potentially do that. Although, quite frankly, given given the choice, I'd rather have Kate McCann and come back. Um, but because. Uh, of in that film she was one of the things i actually enjoyed but she was clearly having a good time and i like that you know when you can see an actor is just having a good time yeah even in a bad movie or film that you that you wish was better or especially uh, in a bad movie especially in a bad movie if the actor if the actor is clearly enjoying themselves yeah. it can be fun just to watch them and that that was that was for me for that movie she was that character but i think that I don't know. I don't know if any of those actors would want to return to the franchise. <laughs> Probably not. They they didn't. You know, however, because of course, what, you know, for what what we what one must always remember is when you don't like a movie that the people who got up and and did the performances in the film um, were just doing their jobs. Yeah, and uh, they were trying really really hard to make whatever they were doing work and uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't sadly <laughs> but uh, I think I think the film leaves you in a place where there are possibilities that don't feel like well I like the fact that you could end it here yeah or you could tell new stories yeah it's not a it's not a it's not sequel bait you get a you get a sense of closure as well as a door being cracked open just a little bit just in case right yeah and i think that i think that really matters um when it comes to 
this sort of thing uh when you've got this kind of emotional attachment to a film series yeah when you've got um for for good and for ill because i mean when you think about it considering the reaction that a lot of people you know there's this acknowledgement that ghostbusters 2 just wasn't great compared to ghostbusters it's an entertaining movie by the way if you Mm -hmm. haven't seen ghostbusters 2 i'm not saying don't watch it um it's got some really fun moments but it doesn't capture that it's an attempt to recapture what made ghostbusters one work in all the ways and like we've talked about that's not something you can really do yeah um there's there's a sense when you have a bad sequel that it's done or you know oh this series is over you know oh this is broken yeah and recapturing that and finding a way to tell something in that story space that's new or even if it's like this like this film leans heavily in nostalgia in a lot of different ways guys um but having that opportunity to open a new door is something that is hard not that easy to do they threaded the needle on this pretty well yeah i mean this was a challenge this could have gone very wrong this could have gone very wrong yeah it could have fortunately it didn't um, yeah, I mean, your mileage may vary as far as how much nostalgia you want, but for all of those, for all of those Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV moments, they hmm. were, they were organic, you know, the stacked books and the, the, who you're going to call and all of those moments were organic. They weren't shoehorned in. They weren't force-fed to us. They weren't beat you over the head with the nostalgia stick and say, hey, you remember this? It, it, it was there as part of everything else. And I think that I, made well, it work a little bit better than, than try to force it in. Well, I think that that helped in terms of the story and having the kids not really understanding history. Yeah. So... And this could have gone wrong too, because this is, you know, <laughs> as you know, um, when you're when you're giving the backstory to a character, when you know, info dumps can be a dangerous and scary thing. Yes, <sighs> but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that it was about about the best that we could hope for. And it stuck the landing pretty well. Yeah, I think so too. Um, by not trying to be identical to the thing it was honoring. Yeah. And uh, and let that be a lesson to you, Hollywood. <laughs> um, there's there, it, it can be done, and and quite frankly, they've they've managed to pull it off recently with some of this stuff. We know we we've seen a lot of this go wrong. There's no question. Yeah. But you've got this. Um, you had a really inspired uh, take on Candyman. You know, one of the big horror icons of the '80s. Um, you've had the revival of the Halloween series. Now, I, I 
I think a lot of people are going to agree that the second film, the second film in the series is not as good as the first. Well, it's a horror sequel, folks. But um, even so, they're doing a pretty good job, all things considered. Um, some of this stuff, seeing it work like this for Ghostbusters makes me a tiny bit more optimistic for something like the, the new Hellraiser franchise. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, a huge fan of that horror series in concept. Um, and, you know, the idea that, that look, guys, it can be done correctly. And when you look at the things, some of the things that, that we've got on the horizon, you know, there's new alien stories being told. There's a new Predator film coming out. Right. There's new, there again, the new Hellraiser series. Um, the These are iconic stories. These are iconic franchises. We've seen what happens when they go don't go right. Whether it's sequelitis or a reboot or whatever. Highlander. <laughs> I mean, we're getting a new Highlander, guys. This is terrifying. This is a terrifying thought. Yes, it is. And it could really work because we've got examples of stuff that does, and it comes down to, I think in a lot of these cases, finding a way to honor the original thing without trying to ape the original thing. Yeah. Because you're not going to capture the lightning in a bottle. You're never going to get those actors together and have it be exactly the same because they're getting older and actors die and how we consume entertainment changes. You can't, you can't reproduce that lightning in a bottle over and over and over again. Right. That's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> They call, they call it magic for a reason. <laughs> right? Well, and, and you know, it's, it's one of those things where you worry about them getting it right, and then when they do stick the landing like this, like Jason Reitman has done, you can kind of, you know, breathe a sigh of relief and wipe your brow and, whew, you know, we dodged that bullet. But, you know, that doesn't mean that the next one won't go sideways completely. Off oh, the God, yeah. Either. You're so yeah. you're so worried about the next one, too, because yeah. because you know, in a way, in a way, when they get it right, it makes it worse. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're, then you're then then you've got expectations. Yeah. Well, you're saying, but, but, but they got it right. Why couldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Well, and and you know, so we, we, we talk about Star Wars a lot, and it just and it popped up in in the comment again. Star Wars sequels a big example of missed opportunities, family. Yeah. The more the and I realize I realize this is a not a popular opinion for a lot of people, but honestly, considering how much. They it was nostalgia bait and then an ending that just was like, let's try and satisfy everyone, which you can't do. Yeah. The most interesting of the films is the one that people seem to dislike the most. I don't think it's interesting at all. Well, that, I mean, that's, I, that's I, the I, 
Uh, well, no, and and I didn't say it was good. <laughs> well, there's that because I have my problems. I, but I also didn't. I didn't hate it the way a lot of people do. Yeah. But I also think that what they tried to do in the second film was try and not do the same thing. And succeeding at that, that's that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm saying they tried to do to to, to in the yeah. universe that had been established with the characters that established, they said, let's try something new. Well, the it, problem it the problem with that, as I've pointed out, is the fact that you're 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 responsible for act two of a three act play. And if it were a standalone film, I think it would have gone over maybe a little bit better. But since you've got a film that completely ignores all of the threads that were laid down for it to pick up, it's disjointed enough that it completely breaks everything. And well, like you said, yeah, it's it's not good. But um, but I think if it had been its own movie by itself, maybe, maybe, and and maybe. this is a stretch, but yeah, well, maybe and, it well, would have been received better a little bit. Well, it's also one of those films where you can, and and maybe this maybe this is a way to talk about the the Ghostbusters reboot is that you can't look at this stuff in isolation. Yeah. It, well, you can, but you it's can. really hard. Yeah. Because it comes with baggage. It comes with a emotional shadow that covers over everything. And you can, and this, that's the problem with beloved stories. <laughs> beloved franchises, <laughs> beloved movies. You've got this, you've got this weight that the filmmakers have got like on their shoulders, pushing them down, going, yeah. is it gonna be as good as the thing that everybody loves? That, is it? Is that's it? why that's why we are never going to get a remake of the Princess Bride. <laughs> oh, I have great faith in the ability of someone to some point sit there and go, let's remake it, and somebody to pay for it and some studio to do it. Yeah. You know what's going to happen? Um, it's going to be, if they're smart, if they're smart, they will say The Princess Bride was a film about story archetypes and recognizing that there's a fair amount of silliness built into those story archetypes. And let's play. Let's play. Let's have fun. Yeah, but you just don't, you just don't remake The Princess Bride. I mean, there is a perfect movie and... It's the Princess Bride. Well, you know, I, I'm inclined to agree, but um, you've met Hollywood. I know, I know. It's a business. Yeah, it's a business. If they can find a way, if they can find a way to squeeze money out of a stone, they'll do it. Yeah. I mean, well, there is that. Speaking of money, uh, I, if if you're if you're interested in throwing some at us, we you know the super chats are active, but we also do have an account over at Subscribestar. I need to update. I haven't been over there in a while. Uh, or the the PayPal uh, link is there in the show notes as well. And we have gone two hours now with, uh, yeah. uh, well, almost two hours, given our, our little interruption of service there in the middle of things. Uh, but uh, we're going to go ahead and close out tonight. If you have comments that you'd like to share with us, of course, you are free to leave those uh, on any of the different platforms where we're broadcasting uh, or you can send us an email, h2o at sci-fi for me.com. 
And if you've got suggestions for topics, if you've got questions for us, if you have uh, ideas for discussions that we can have later, uh, certainly we do uh, invite you to share those with us. And of course, if you're new to the channel, uh, I've seen, I see some names in the chat uh, this evening that I've not seen before. I'm glad to see the, uh, some new Welcome. people here. Uh, glad you're here. Hope you stick around. There are plenty of videos uh, for you to, uh, to oh, what? Not sufficient disk space to continue recording. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're, we're, just, we're just hitting on all thrusters tonight. All right. So, uh, yeah, so that's going to be it for us. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. Uh, we will be back to do this all again. Same bat time, same bat channel next week. And uh, in the meantime... The balcony is closed, or something, right? Good night, everyone. <laughs> Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.